in this Lenten season, we have been making our way through the seven deadly sins. And just thinking about the events of uh, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Holy Week through Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and of course Easter Sunday, and how we get these glimpses of the seven deadly sins along the way in the story from the religious leaders and their lust for power or the envy of the Pharisees, to the anger of the crowds, to the the pride of the soldiers as they mock Jesus. Even Pilate's slothful indecision, his unwillingness to do the right thing at the right time when it needed to be done. And then, of course, the greed of Judas. So today we're talking about greed. And I want to begin with um, a pretty throwback cultural icon Um, fairly old school, takes us into the 1980s. And uh, before I tell you who this is or show you who this is, I want you to hear some words uh, from a speech that he gave. uh, And this is really the world's wisdom about money. He said, greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. Anybody remember the name? It's not Rocky Balboa, whoever just said that. It's Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko. In the movie Wall Street, this was you know, way back when double-breasted suits and uh, pinstripe power patterns were all the rage. Greed, he said, is good. It works. It marks the upward surge of humanity. That's quite a profound statement. And it's worth thinking about what that means for you and for me. And maybe this is why we've saved greed for last. There are a few things that are as universally challenging and tempting as this sin that we call greed. And I'm sure that some of you, when you found out we'd be talking about this, maybe you opened up your worship guide and you, know, you started squirming a little bit or you may be wondering, why do we have to talk about money in church? I mean, your mama taught you growing up, there are two things we never talk about in public, money and politics. And then religion's kind of a close third. Well, one reason we need to talk about it, especially on this Palm Sunday, you know what killed Jesus? Among other things, money and politics. His close friend Judas, who betrayed him for a bag. And then you have Pilate, whose political calculus kept him from risking his own influence in order to stand up for a man that he knew was innocent. And just to let you know, the only thing more awkward than having to sit through a sermon on money and greed in church is to have to preach about it. And so I know that you're all just feeling great sympathy for me. So um, just to inject a little bit of fun here, uh, what's the worst thing anyone has ever thrown into an offering basket? Uh, you may remember, you know, we used to pass the offering plates and the ushers would come out. And what's the worst thing anybody's ever put in the offering basket? And this is besides coming to America and, you know, when he put the drum bone into the offering plate. Here's an actual photo of an actual check that somebody put uh, into the offering basket of a local church. So you guys can kind of catch, okay. Isn't that a great way to provide positive feedback to the pastor? They even spelled two wrong. Like there's another O if you're going to be really upset, about, really upset about that. And just so you know, this did not happen in this church, okay? Nobody here would ever do something so passive aggressive. So um, why as a community do we need to grapple with and talk about something like greed? Well, partly 
It's just our context. We're sitting here in one of the wealthiest zip codes in the world. So if greed is going to be an issue anywhere, it's certainly going to be one here. But it's not just that. In the New Testament, Jesus talks more about money than any other single topic except for the kingdom of God, more than heaven and hell combined. In the Gospel of Luke in particular, uh, which is the gospel we're going to be looking at today, one, of, one in every seven verses is a reference to money. Why does Jesus think this is so important? Because our attitude toward money is one of the most visible measures of our hearts. Money is an outward uh, measure of the inward life. Jesus put it this way in his most famous talk he ever gave. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now just think about those words for a moment. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your heart will follow your treasure. You'd think it would be the other way around. That treasure would follow your heart. You would give money, you'd give wealth, uh, to the things that you're passionate about. Jesus actually says, no, it is the other way around. Money is such a powerful thing that your heart will inevitably move towards your treasure, toward the things that you invest in, that, that you possess. Your heart will follow your treasure. That's why it is so vitally important that we get really clear about the pull and power of greed, the influence that money and possessions can have on our life. So with that, let's turn together to the Gospel of Luke. It's the third um, book in the New Testament, and we'll be in Luke chapter 12. This is a story that Jesus tells in Luke 12 about a rich man. And we'll start in verse 15 of Luke 12. It's a parable about the rich man. And he, Jesus, said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now we're gonna pause real quick and I just want you to look carefully at how Jesus begins this story. Who's the hero? Like who's kind of the main character or the protagonist at the very beginning, the first eight words of this story? It's not actually the man, is it? It's the land. The land produced plentifully. The man didn't create his wealth, the land did. Then secondly, the word used to describe the man as rich, it's the Greek word plusios. Plusios, it means, it means to have an abundance of earthly possessions exceeding normal experience. Normal experience, which sort of begs the question, what's normal? Is normal what I see around these parts? Or is normal some kind of global baseline of earthly possessions? Because if that's the case, well, then just about every person in this room, by virtue of your living in this part of the world, you, like the, the man in this parable, you are rich. You see, often the way we answer that question, who's rich? It's the person who has a little bit more than I do. That's why when you ask people if they're happy, if they're content with their sort of financial standing, the answer is almost always no. Right, some of you know this one. Who's happier, the man with uh, $10 million or the man with 12 kids? The man with 12 kids because he knows he doesn't want any more. <laughs> now, Jesus was a master storyteller. And there's something going on here that we need to pay attention to. As we read through this text, notice the number of times that this rich man in the story, he's either speaking of or thinking about himself. 
All right, so we're looking for first-person pronouns along the way, like I, me, my. Verse 17, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. So he takes stock of all that he has, and you can almost, the way that Jesus tells the story, you can almost hear the the delight in his heart as he realizes he has to build even bigger barns. By the way, counting, counting is the main pleasure of the person overcome with greed. Counting, watching wealth grow. Is the, it's the delight of a person who's sick with greed. Verse 19, again, watch how he talks about himself. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Isn't that, I mean, the guy is talking to himself. He's talking to his own soul. Now here comes the turn in verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The thing about the guy in this story, he's not some Ponzi scheme criminal. In fact, he's, he's a good investor. He's shrewd. He's prudent. He's smart. In our day, he'd probably be respected. Early retirement house on Lake Athens or whatever ranch in West Texas, life is good. Jesus never says the man was evil or wicked. He simply says, you fool. And what made him a fool? The fact that he was rich? No. The problem is not that he has all these possessions. It's that his possessions have him. He gave his life to the wrong things. The problem with this wealthy man is is that what he owned ended up owning him. That's greed. It's when your possessions end up possessing you. And see, the real danger of greed is if left unchecked, your wealth, your possessions, they can begin to imitate God. They begin to do what God does. Wealth, think about it. It provides for you. It gives you a sense of security, of protection. It's interesting that we call it savings. Right? There's this subtle temptation to believe that our savings can protect us. They can save us. Wealth and possessions, they can give us these temporary moments of fleeting beauty. It can give you value, status, a sense of worth. That's the danger of greed. It promises so much. It becomes like a God. And like every other false God, greed promises what only the true God provides. Now, let me be careful here. Money is not in itself a bad thing, but it is a powerful multiplier, magnifier. It magnifies who we already are. If someone's a fool with no money and you give them a million dollars, what is it going to make them? It's a rich fool. That's why we can't can't put off or wait teaching about and learning about generosity until we have a lot of money. When I was a young adult pastor, I had a lot of these conversations over coffee or meals with college grads, young professionals, and often they were sort of trying to figure out, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? What am I passionate about? What's my vocation? What kind of career do I want to pursue? And, 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 and there were often moments when, and it may not have been said in this exact way, but I can remember times when somebody basically said something like this. Really what I want to do when I grow up is I, I want to be able to make a lot of money so that I can give a lot of money away to great things. 
And I, I would, you know, affirm that and be so grateful for that. But then I would ask them, have you built that practice into your life already? This is why we talk about generosity and giving with our kids and our students. Last week, Anna Crumpler um, gave a great message to our uh, high school and middle school students about living a generous life. We want to talk about this with our children and Highland kids because they're beginning to think about money. A while back, um, our uh, daughter Annie asked uh, her mom a question, and it kind of came out of nowhere, but she said, Mommy, what would you do with $2 million? Where that question came from, I don't know, but as Allie was thinking about her response, our other daughter, our younger daughter, Collier Jane, just blurted out, if I had $2 million, I'd build the biggest jump house in the world, and you and me and God would jump on it all day long, which I just thought was an oddly specific answer. We want to raise up a generation of generous, sacrificial givers who have learned and it's been modeled to them to steward what God has given them, not closed-fisted but open-handed, so that they are not possessed by their possessions. Money simply makes us more of who we already are. And by the way, it is a good thing that money would be in the hands of wise people, not fools. That's a good thing, that there are people who trust God, who live surrender to Jesus, and who steward wealth for the benefit of others and to the glory of God. That is a good thing. This is not about bashing rich people. In this story, Jesus tells the man is a fool, not because he's rich, but because he overlooked the one sure thing in life, that our days are numbered. That death is coming for all of us. And it's one of the wisest financial insights you will ever hear. Your day is coming too. Isn't that encouraging to hear on Sunday at church? My day's coming. And the thing about money is I can't, I can't take it with me. My possessions, my portfolio, the status or the titles or the accomplishments, you die and they don't go with you. Fool, Jesus said, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Not yours. Not yours. Great picture of this. In 1922, there was a team of archaeologists who unearthed the, uh, the remains of uh, one of the great Egyptian pharaohs, King Tut. This is the tomb of King Tut. And for a number of years, the, these treasures from his tomb, they, they went on this famous you know, tour to museums across the world. You may have gone to this. I think it was in Dallas or, or Fort Worth. And people were just fascinated by this, King Tut and his treasures. Just think about that. The body of a king, once the most powerful man on the planet, richest man in the world, sealed with his riches for all of those centuries, 3,000 years in this dark and airless chamber. And then when they discovered it, and they moved that rock, and they opened up that tomb, his body had decomposed, but the gold, it was shining brightly as ever. The only thing missing was the king himself. He couldn't take it with him, and now he's just a pile of dust and rags. And then one day, one day there was another tomb and another king. And when his stone was rolled away, all that remained were the linens that had wrapped around the body of Jesus. There was no gold, no treasures, no relics. Jesus died without a penny or possession to his name, but his body was not there. He was a different kind of king, one who spent his life giving, investing in the only treasure we can take with us. It's the treasure of a life that is given and poured out in love. He died penniless, but he was rich toward God. And now one 
king's treasures sit in a museum. The other king launched a revolution that changed the world. At the end of this uh, parable, Jesus makes it real simple. He says the purpose of life is to be rich toward God. To be rich toward God. God wants you to be rich toward him. And the surest way to be rich toward God is to know how rich God has been toward you. You cannot help but be rich toward God when you see and behold and come to know just how rich God has been toward you. That that in his riches, he paid for your debt. He sent his perfect, sinless son, Jesus, into this world and to the cross for you. He's the prodigal father. He is extravagant in his blessings and all that he has is yours. And even when you run away from him, he's waiting to welcome you back home. So in just a moment, we're going to come to this table to receive the riches of his grace and his presence poured out for us. But before we do that, um, this is really the question that we have asked each week throughout this series. How do we find freedom? Not be possessed by our possessions, but how do we have hearts that are freed from the bondage of greed? And this really takes us back to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do you find freedom from greed? Do with your treasure what God does with his. And what does God do? He gives. For God so loved the world, he gave. God is a giver. And so one of the ways we move toward freedom in a world where there are so many in bondage to greed, one of the ways we find freedom is through the spiritual practice of giving. In giving our love, our attention, in giving of our time, one of the most precious resources. Giving of our giftedness in serving others, and yes, in giving our treasure. And just to be clear, this is not a setup for like a big pledge moment, but I have seen this time and again in the hearts of those who live generously, many of you in this church, that giving and the the specific practice of learning to release Our clutch, our grasp of money is a learned practice that begins to set us free from fear, from greed, from always wanting more. I think about one family who during the last economic downturn, they have a small family business and they just about lost everything. Their income disappeared overnight. Um, But this couple, as they prayed about their priorities and how to just move forward, they resolved to keep giving at the exact same amount to the causes that they cared about and supported in the church they loved. They met with their financial advisor to talk about this, and he said, you guys are crazy. Like, you can't do that. It's going to ruin you. But they decided that they they were going to do this, and they were going to make lifestyle changes um, that it took for them to keep on giving. First thing they did to save money is they fired their financial advisor, and that kind of saved some cash. But then they did some downsizing. And they traded in a luxury car and they stopped buying all the you know, newest gadgets and upgrades and they canceled a bunch of their online subscriptions. They switched from lattes to drip coffee. It's amazing what that'll do for your cash flow. And over time, this family realized they didn't need nearly as much as they thought they did and that there was actually a lot more joy. They realized that one of two things was gonna happen along the way. Either God was gonna provide more for what they needed, or God was gonna help them to see that they didn't need as much as they thought they did. 
And that was so freeing for them. But see, it's not just freedom from something like a vice or a sin or an idol or a, you know, a sinful pattern, but being set free for something that is so much bigger, a life that is so much more significant than just the small little kind of world of me and my comfort and my safety. And when we give to God, he begins to bind our hearts to the things that he is doing in this world and in our city and the ways that he is changing people around us. And so when you give and you realize and you wake up to the fact that you're some small part of what God is doing to to raise up a next generation of leaders from under-resourced communities and parts of the city of Dallas and what we're doing in partnership with amazing organizations like Dallas Leadership Foundation and how they're, they're coming into prisons and they are helping men find and follow Jesus. And then on the other side of incarceration, they are empowering them to live out their God-given giftedness or helping to strengthen churches and fund these new church planners in Cuba where they are bringing the light of Jesus into a place where there is so much darkness and so much decay and so much poverty. And when you know that your resources are helping to shut down drug houses in West Dallas and South Dallas so that neighborhoods and so that kids are safe again, when that happens, it's like it makes our fears and our anxieties and even our idols seem so much smaller. And see, most of all, when we give, it opens up our eyes to see how much God has given to us. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. And so, yes, I want to invite you to be a giver and to be part of what God's doing in and through this church. And we can't say this often enough, but this is such a generous church and I am inspired and I'm challenged and I am humbled by your faithful generosity. And just to level set and to remind all of us, it's not about some small group of people who like, give a lot of money to make it all happen and fund what we do. It is the hundreds of individuals and families who, who week in and week out, they make a decision as an act of discipleship to give sacrificially, and they do it with joy. And I'll tell you what happens. Their heart follows their treasure. So just to be a little bit more practical, and I know for some of you, this is old news. You have put this in the practice. We're so grateful. But for some of you, this is new. Church is new. Following Jesus is a new thing. And so when we open the scriptures and we look at what God seems to say about giving, the one challenge I would lay before you is to give proportionally. Scripture talks about a tithe, which is a fancy Bible word. It just means a tenth. The first tenth of what God has given you. Don't get get so caught up in the numbers. It's this picture of taking the first portion, the first percentage of what God has entrusted to you and setting it aside and giving it away as an act of worship. More important than the number itself is just this willingness, this intentionality of saying, God, I trust you and I, am, and I see the power of money and I am willing to return to you the first portion of what you have already given to me. It's not about guilt. It's not something that is meant to be done in a spirit of reluctance, but this joyful choice of the heart to give. And this is the story of the church. Not long after Jesus died, the earliest Christians, they so took this to heart 
and so believed in the message of this man they loved and who gave his life for them that they became a generous people. They pulled together their resources for the sake of the poor and the foreigner and the widow. They gave of themselves. They opened up their homes. They sold some of their possessions. When they saw babies lying and abandoned on the side of the road, literally left for dead, these Jesus followers would pick them up and take them into their homes and provide for them and raise them as their own. They would take in sick people and care for them in a day when you just imagine diseases that would run uh, and ravage entire cities where a third, a fourth of the population of a city would die of some, of some disease like the plague. And you had Jesus followers while everybody else was trying to avoid it and trying to run away. Jesus followers were coming in to serve and to care for the dying. And what led to this never before seen growth of this movement, this Jesus movement, it wasn't the great preaching of the preachers or the cool buildings they didn't have any or some slick marketing campaign. It was simply a community who so believed in the message and life of this man, Jesus, that they dedicated themselves to being rich toward God and giving of their resources and selling their possessions, and opening their homes, and giving even their own lives out of love for the world. And through their generosity, God changed the world and the course of history. And so as we come to this table, God, to receive your love and your forgiveness poured out richly for us, we thank you that we get to be a part of that story. And we ask that you would help us to become your body given and poured out richly in love for one another and in love for this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.